It's a delight to be with you here tonight to contemplate the Dharma, the truth of the way things are. Tonight's talk is titled, Living in Delusion, Living in Truth. So Joseph talked last night about suffering and the end of suffering in um, using the, the outline of the Four Noble Truths. And tonight I want to talk about this same journey from suffering to freedom, to the end of suffering, but I'm going to talk about it in the movement from delusion to wisdom or ignorance to truth. Most of you know by now that we talk in Buddhism about three foundations or three roots of suffering, grasping, aversion, and delusion. And we've really been talking a lot about all three of these throughout the retreat. Though we've used the words, we've talked more about grasping and aversion using those actual words. We've been talking about delusion the whole time, but we haven't um, really used that word and labeled it as such. And so tonight I'm going to go more deeply into um, what we mean by delusion in the Buddhist sense of the word and how we make this movement from living in delusion to living in truth or living with wisdom. So of these three roots of suffering, uh, delusion or ignorance, and often these words are used um, interchange, in Theravadan Buddhism, these words are often used the same, delusion and ignorance. So of these three roots, the foundational one is ignorance or delusion. This is what feeds grasping and aversion. The not knowing or not seeing the truth of life as it is, is what causes grasping and aversion to arise. And when uh, the chain of conditioning is talked about um, in the um, chain of dependent uh, co-arising, which some of you have heard of, and we're actually going to have a talk about in a few days. Um, ignorance is listed as the first um, link in the chain where it all starts. So what do we mean by this word in Buddhism? So the word delusion, is um, the Pali word is moha, and it means seeing not seeing things clearly as they are. And if you think of the word delusion, it's of illusion. So there's living in illusions, not living in the truth. So it's misunderstanding life and the way it is. It's often stated as not understanding the Four Noble Truths and not understanding the law of karma. So delusion is fundamental ignorance about the way uh, reality is, the nature of reality. It's also sometimes used to describe the mind that is muddled or confused or clouded, the mind that can't see clearly. When delusion is present, we notice that we do not see the truth clearly. We don't see the way things are in a way that 
um, gives rise to wisdom and freedom. So the word ignorance is translated as awija, a, a or that's a Pali word, is awija, which means the failure to see or know. So the words are very close, and I will sometimes use them interchangeably. And this um, quality of ignorance is often depicted as a person with a blindfold on, so the person can't see. Or sometimes it's depicted as somebody um, who has cataracts. And so um, when you try to see through cataracts, you don't see clearly. It's blurred, or you can't see at all. I sometimes feel delusion as a little bit. It's, in, it's interesting because we think of it often as like a passive quality that a delusion kind of arises. But for me, there's some kind of volitional act um, in, in delusion of denying the truth. It takes actually a lot of energy to deny the way things are. Delusion consumes a lot of energy in our system as we try to keep the truth at bay. It's like we have to protect ourselves from seeing the truth of things. So there's agitation, there's dis-ease or uneasiness. And as we get closer to the truth, we find that actually a lot of energy gets released. There's a lot of, um, um, we're not consumed. Our attention, our energy isn't consumed by keeping the truth at bay. So delusion anesthetizes us. It, um, it protects us by uh, allowing us to live in illusion. And the, and the illusions give us a sense of being able to control this world, our sense of being able to see this world as we wish it were, or as we want to see it, as we, or as we hope to see it or as we try to see it. And there's a certain kind of anesthetizing that happens there. It's a certain kind of protection. T.S. Eliot said, most people can't handle too much reality. Or in a, in a more um, humorous quote from Jane Wagner, who's Lily Tomlin's speechwriter and partner. Reality is the leading cause of stress amongst those in touch with it. I can take it in small doses, but as a lifestyle, I found it too confining. (laughs) It's like how Joseph said the other night um, about, "Mm, what was it? Make me chaste, but not yet. It's like, it's that sense of, hmm. So we do have this sense, uh, this urge, we, we all have this deep urge to know the truth or we wouldn't be here. You don't wind up here by accident. But we also have this urge not to know the truth because uh, it's kind of intense. So we can experience a lot of um, resistance in meditation. That's that other urge to not know the truth, to stay anesthetized in delusion 
Or sometimes we'll find that we go deeper into practice. There'll be a day where we feel more settled and really in. And then the next day, it's just like our mind goes crazy all day. Just thinking, 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 thinking. Basically, um, backing up a little bit, anesthetizing itself in thought. Trungpa Rinpoche said that meditation is irritatingly down to earth. <laughs> I like that. It's that movement to, to the truth. <laughs> but irritatingly, you know, we, sometimes we have um, mixed feelings about this. One today, today, one yogi who gave me permission to um, share her her uh, story, she talked today about, she says, I'm noticing the comfort I have in my illusions. That's that sense of anesthetizing. She, she, she's young, at least to me, <laughs> from my perspective. And she said, you know, people of my generation, we were all raised on Disney, Disney movies. And, um, you know, it always has a happy ending. And so I've always been told, like, if I get in the right college and I get the right job and I get the right partner and I get, you know, have the right family and everything, that I'm going to be happy. And that this is what society's been telling me over and over again. And she said she's starting to see through this story. That this delusion, you could say, is starting to unravel. That she was realizing that it was just a habitual thought pattern in the mind. And that life is not a Disney movie. And she said, well, this brought some unease. She also felt like it's was a lot of freedom. It brought a lot of freedom in the mind. And it brought a lot of freedom in the mind because it's, it's true that we can't guarantee happiness by circumstances. So moving from the, from the wish or the um, um, deeply ingrained thinking pattern that we can find happiness by making circumstances be a certain way, moving to seeing through that and seeing that... Um, <coughs> While, yes, certain circumstances can bring us a certain amount of comfort, they're not going to guarantee our happiness. That's a movement from delusion to wisdom to truth. So there's lots of levels of delusion. One level might be just a sense of resisting the truth of of our experience and the kinds of um, thoughts and emotions that arise within our being. So we, we kind of hope that, that when we come to meditation, we're going to see mostly the good stuff, right? That, that uh, we're going to see all our wonderful qualities. And um, it doesn't often work out that way. Um, when I came to meditation, I, I thought I was pretty together. And um, after a three-month course, I was... Um, disabused of that notion. (laughs) I was actually quite shocked when I saw what was happening in this mind and heart, right? And then there's all kinds of um, levels of societal delusion. Denial. Denial is a form of delusion. They've actually studied that when denial is happening in the brain, like there's a way that the brain neurons function to um, make 
the information unavailable, the information that you're trying to deny, that there's actually a way the brain kind of sets itself up. So there's a lot of delusion right now in society about the, the problems that we're faced as a species. And then there's all kinds of conditioning due to um, our race, our socioeconomic class that, that we don't even see because um, um, it's the water that we swim in. So there's this ignorance or delusion or not seeing the conditioning of the mind. I remember when I first started working in, in community mental health in the inner city, inner city many, many years ago, um, I came in and I was giving lots of advice and counseling from middle class, white middle class values. That's what I'd been raised in and I didn't know there was, I didn't know that I had white middle class values until I started to see that a lot of my advice wasn't actually useful in the situation that, that I was working in. And then I started to be able to actually see the kind of values I had. So waking up out of ignorance and, and seeing um, that conditioning that was so hidden. And then there's this fundamental ignorance of not seeing or not understanding life as it is. The three characteristics that we've talked about a lot. Impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. I'll talk more about that later in the talk. I found a um, cartoon, I think it's from the New Yorker. The guy's at his laptop. He says, I Google myself, I get a hit, therefore I am. (laughs) There, a little delusion about not self, right? Anytime that we're not in touch with the truth of reality, the truth of the way things are, there is going to be some uneasiness. There's going to be a sense of dissonance or discordance. Ignorance always causes disharmony and suffering because it's not in alignment with truth. It's not in harmony with the way things are. And there's a way that I find delusion such a shocking quality in the mind because by definition, when we're deluded, we don't know we're deluded. So when we're caught in delusion or ignorance about the way things are, we don't know that we're caught. How's that for messing with the mind? (laughs) Ajahn Chah was once reported that someone said to Ajahn Chah, I can observe desire and aversion in the mind, but it's hard to observe delusion. And he laughed and said, you're riding on a horse and asking where the horse is. How do we trust ourselves when the very nature of delusion is that we're confused, that we don't see? It takes a lot of um, holding, learning to hold what we believe and what we see, to hold it very lightly and with lots of compassion. And the Buddha said, one of the signs of wisdom is seeing our own foolishness. So in some ways, that's the way out, to see um, our own ignorance or to see where a delusion is present.
So what perpetuates delusion? What perpetuates this quality in the mind and heart? We'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about like what transforms delusion, what uh, brings about wisdom and the truth. So one way that delusion is perpetuated is by living in disconnect. So living, you could say, uh, a bit removed from the present moment, from what's happening. And often this happens by living uh, in the thought stories of our mind, the imaginary stories of our mind, or just in the endless distractions that we can find to take us away from the contact with right here, right now, what's happening. And uh, you all know that our world offers us many, many, many forms of distraction. And then we come on retreat and we limit those. So that's uh, to help us move towards the truth, towards wisdom, towards being here. But we can find some on retreat too, like reading the signs in the bathroom over and over again or (laughs) checking the bulletin board every sitting or... We try, we try to find our distractions on retreat. So all of the distractions that the world offer us, and then this um, tendency to live in the thought world, which is also the disconnect, the distraction. Um, yeah, we're not really, we don't really land in the present moment. And so we can kind of make up stories about the way things are, and then live in them and believe them. There's a poem by Nicanor Parra from Chile that um, I think for me gets just the kind of the sense and the feeling of this living in disconnect. It's called The Imaginary Man. The imaginary man lives in an imaginary mansion surrounded by imaginary trees along the shore of an imaginary river. Antique imaginary paintings hang from the walls which are imaginary, irreparable imaginary cracks that represent imaginary happenings that occurred in imaginary worlds and imaginary places and times. Every afternoon, imaginary afternoon, he climbs the imaginary stairs and goes out on the imaginary balcony to look at the imaginary countryside that consists of an imaginary valley surrounded by imaginary hills. Imaginary shadows come down the imaginary roads singing imaginary songs to the imaginary sunset. And on the nights with an imaginary moon, he dreams of his imaginary wife who offered him her imaginary love, and he feels again the same sorrow, the same imaginary pleasure, and his heart, the heart of the imaginary man, beats again. I get such a feeling from that poem of um, hmm, just a feeling of disconnect and, and a kind of sorrow and sadness that comes from that, from living a little bit removed from life. And that's what we're, you could say, that's what we're counteracting here, learning how to live in the real world, not in an imaginary world. Another big way that uh, delusion is perpetuated is through the uh, 
the way that the mind perceives and makes sense out of reality. So I'd like to talk a little bit about perception and how it works. So what perception does, you've heard of the five aggregates, perception being one of the aggregates. So what perception does is it takes some sense contact and then it goes through the files in the mind and it names it and decides what it is. So perception interprets what's seen, heard, smelled, taste, thought. And to do that, it uses memories, associations, conditioned perceptual categories that we have in the mind. And so what we see is that our perception is actually an interpretation or a best guess based on prior experience to what is happening in this moment. One day I was sitting at a pond near my house. It was a windy day. And um, I was just sitting. I like to sit and meditate in nature a lot. So I was just sitting, practicing being. And then I heard this sound. It was like this crackling sound. And I watched my mind. It was so interesting. It was really almost like it was an office file. I could feel it like going through files. What is this? It was like... And it finally said, well, water going over rocks. That was what it came up with. And, um, and then the next moment, this huge tree crashed down behind me. The, the um, beavers had chewed through a lot of it, and it was a windy day, and the sound was the tree falling. But my mind didn't have a file for that. Like, it had a file for water going over rocks, and so that's what it chose. And it was really just interesting to, to see perception do that and to see that perception, as I said, is a best guess. It does its best guess about what the truth of the moment is. But it's very um, prone to uh, mistakes because it uses all of this past information and, and doesn't... Uh, always know what to look for. And then interestingly, later in that same walk, I was, I was sitting on this bridge. I was actually laying down on this wooden bridge, and something touches my hand. And the first thought is, it's a wild animal. <laughs> and then I open my eyes, and it's a neighbor's dog. But again, it's like the, the perception does its best guess, and often it likes to guess um, air towards uh, danger <laughs> so that uh, we don't die. It's really that kind of conditioning, right? So it fills, um, perception fills in a lot of information automatically, and it makes lots of assumptions. They show that, for example, the act of seeing is 20% based on sense data and 80% on the brain and what the brain does with it. So most of the act of seeing is actually what the brain kind of comes up with. Last um, spring, I went to the eye doctor. It was very interesting. I, um, he tells me at one point in the exam, he says, well, you're farsighted. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> Never been farsighted. <laughs> My first thought is, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He was the first time I'd seen him. I usually saw his wife. And, um, and so he says, well, look at that chart on the door. He says, read it. So it wasn't a chart. It was a sign or poster. He said, read it. So I read it. 
And then he gave me some glasses. He said, now read it. And I looked through the glasses, and I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, it's like my mind, I, well, I'm farsighted now, I found out. Um, I guess when you get older, uh, when you're younger, you can be farsighted, and the eye makes up for it. And then when you get older, I can't do it anymore. Um, but it was interesting. It's like my, my perception had been filling in a lot of the um, changes in my eyesight. And then when I was confronted with the reality of the glasses, then I realized that. So perception, also what it does is it goes from bare um, experience to greater and greater conceptualization. So, for example, you might be sitting here, you hear a sound, you identify it as a bird, then perhaps you identify it as a robin. I was talking about this in an interview with somebody today. And then perhaps you might start to wonder why the robin's still here. Is the robin going to be all right? Does the robin not go south due to climate change? Or, you know, the mind starts getting further and further out there, right? When we think we know what it is, that often shuts down the, um, the inquiry. We stop paying attention. This is useful on one level. It's convenient. It saves energy, essential for the human brain. So conceptualization is quite helpful in certain circumstances. Like every time I come to door, if I have to figure out what it is, that would be kind of slow, right? So it's good. I know what a door is. I know how to get through a door. I know what to do, and I don't have to pay a whole lot of attention. But the truth of the matter is that when an object seems very familiar to us, it's actually because we're seeing our concept of the object or we're living in our concept of the object and not um, the truth of that sense experience in that moment. Because the truth of the matter is that every moment is new and fresh. Like every time you take a breath, it's different than the breath before. But when it seems familiar to us, then we're just living in the thought of a breath. So the risk with this way that the mind works with per- perception is that um, the more we kind of get uh, go from perception then to all these thoughts and feelings around what happened, the further we go into conceptualization and then this mental proliferation, the further we go from the way things are to the way we construct them to be, or assume them to be. And so this leads to these deep grooves, neuronal, neuron neuron grooves in the mind, um, where perception leads to thoughts and views and opinions and assumptions about the world and about ourselves and about life. And, And as we go over these patterns over and over and over again, they become ossified. They become very deeply entrenched. And then the views and opinions and assumptions themselves start to influence perception. So there's this feedback loop. As what we see starts to agree with our views of the world. That's how the mind works. It sees what agrees with our views of the world. We see what fits our um, conditioning, the old stories. 
And so if we're not careful, there's a certain rigidity that um, comes into our minds, hearts, a lack of flexibility. And there's not much room for some new information to enter. I learned a lot about this when I was young. I was, when I was in college, I was kind of a lefty-leaning college student. And um, when I was graduating from college when I was 22, I was offered a job teaching ESL in Nicaragua. And this was back in the time of the, um, for those who are my age and older, back in the time of the Sandinistas and the Contra War. And the younger, some of you younger one might not know quite as much about that. But basically, there was a war on the border, which our government here was involved in. And even though my parents thought I shouldn't go and my dad joked about buying me a rifle to take with me, um, as young people will do, I went off to Nicaragua uh, because I was curious. I wanted to see what's going on. So the Sandinista government, the leftist leaning government, I was like curious, what, what's really going on down there? And um, I worked in this uh, American school, which was a very weird place to work at that uh, time. I was teaching ESL to basically rich Nicaraguans and diplomats. So it was weird, too. We had, like, Bulgarians and Russians, and it was all mixed with... Um, it was a strange place. But um, the uh, director of the school was quite leaned quite to the right, and the principal of the secondary school where I worked leaned quite to the left. And so something would happen over the weekend, and the two of them would come in Monday talking about it. And it would be so interesting. The director would be, those damn Sandinistas, you know, what they did now. And, and it, he would, you know, have his own story interpretation about what it meant, what had happened. And then the principal would come in and say, oh, those great Sandinistas. They, and it was the exact same incident. And they would have these two totally different stories and views on it. And I just watched this happen over and over and over again. And it was fascinating to me. And I thought I was going to go to Nicaragua and get some answers. Actually, I learned that the truth is very complicated and gray. And um, it helped me to learn not to be too attached to opinions. I guess we don't have to go to Nicaragua to see this kind of story either. So our perceptions influence what we see or our... Um, views and opinions and assumptions about life influence what we see. They actually shape it. Once upon a time, a man whose axe was missing suspected his neighbor's son. The boy walked like a thief, looked like a thief, and spoke like a thief. But the man found his axe while digging in the valley, and the next time he saw his neighbor's son, the boy walked, looked, and spoke like any other child. So the, the mind doesn't like um, dissonance very much. It likes... Uh, it likes to see what agrees with its thoughts and opinions. And so often when we see something that doesn't agree with our thoughts and our opinions or our deep conditioning in the mind, we just we won't actually see it. 
gets filtered out or we see what agrees with our assumptions and don't see the, the rest. But with meditation, we're trying to bring in some flexibility and learn how to hold our views and opinions more loosely. And when we can do that, then we can update the files, then we can let new information in. So it's delusion, this this circle of our views and opinions uh, influencing what we see. And then what we see, again, reinforcing views and opinions. It's, uh, this is what delusion is. And the movement towards wisdom is holding uh, what, we, what we think much more lightly so that we can look and see what the actual truth is. One way we might see this kind of conditioning is... Um, on retreat especially, it's like we can see our old, deeply entrenched uh, conditioning from our childhood. So a lot of the conditioning that's set in in our childhood, that's uh, some of the most tenacious conditioning. It's like built into the whole system and the nervous system and how it works. And um, so we'll, we'll, we'll be on retreat, and sometimes we get caught in these loops of this old conditioning like one common conditioning we hear a lot about is this conditioning that I'm, I'm not good enough, that there's something basically flawed about me and uh, I'm not uh, good enough. And then what happens is, if we have this conditioning, is we see only information that confirms that view, as I was saying. So we might have a sitting where we're sleepy. And at the end of that sitting, we'll be, oh, I'm a disaster as a meditator. I'm no good at this. I'm... I'm basically flawed. Everybody else here can meditate. I can't. And we completely disregard the fact that we've actually persevered for nine weeks or three weeks. Like it doesn't enter when we get caught in these loops. Uh, The only information that enters is information that confirms the basic delusion or assumptions that the mind has. So the early conditioning is really um, strong and we develop ideas about life from our early condition that really solidify into um, deep patterns of conditioning. And if um, we have an unsafe childhood, these patterns of conditioning are even more tenacious and they tend to be patterns that um, perceive danger more often than it's actually present. Again, we like to err. The mind likes to err on the side of caution. Better safe than sorry. Um, so we get these very tenacious conditioning pattern, condition patterns that change very slowly. We have to have so much compassion for ourselves with these. Now, if you had a safe childhood, you know, you're still going to have a lot of conditioning that came up. It just might be a little bit less um, erring on the side of danger all the time. But still, it's the conditioning of the human organism. The, the Zen teacher Darlene Cohen talks about how when we work with this kind of um, deep conditioning, we have to go through it 300,000 times. The first 1,000, she says, the first 1,000 times is noticing the pattern. 
The second 1,000 times is observing where this comes from in the body. And the third 1,000 times is one, when one finally begins to have a choice about whether they fall into the conditioning. That's a lot of times. I think that the point is to um, have a lot of patience with ourselves. So on retreat, we can find like a trigger will happen, and then we'll get caught in these stories, right? These, oh, this old conditioning and create this picture of reality that can be quite distorted. I had an interesting experience with this one time when I was on retreat, and I was... Um, Fourth in line, I was standing waiting for lunch. I was fourth in line. It was a big retreat like this, about 120 people eating. And the thought that went through my mind was, there's not going to be enough for me. It was obviously there was going to be enough for me. I was fourth in line and there was food for 120 people. But it was so interesting because the moments that my mind was caught in this conditioning, some old childhood stuff, right? When it was caught in this conditioning, I really believed there wasn't going to be enough for me. And that's what I saw. That's what I perceived, right? When we can see it, right? Then it's like we can update the files. When we have some space around these the, our thoughts, our assumptions, our views, our opinions, then we can update the files. Oh, yeah, I'm fourth in line. I think there's going to be enough. Um, so this possibility that happens when we can bring awareness to these patterns of delusion. Maybe I'm not inherently flawed. When we have that thought, I'm not good enough, maybe, just maybe there's a moment where we can see that that's a story, that's a, a delusion or an illusion that we've picked up and brought along for a long time. Another time, I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but there was a, um, one time I was on retreat uh, with somebody, uh, an ex-boyfriend who, this was a long time ago, an ex-boyfriend who had broken up with me and uh, it was still painful for me. And at one point, I saw that he'd written this note for this other woman on the board. I went through a week of working with my emotions around this. Like, very intense, right? I learned a lot. It was really educational. Um, (laughs) And then at the end of the retreat, I said to him, hey, what about that note that you wrote? You know, I thought he was interested in this woman on top of it. I said, what about that note you wrote to whoever it was? And he said, I didn't write any notes on this retreat. And I believed him because he wasn't the note-writing type, you know. So, wow. So my insecurity, my old assumptions, all my old patterns saw that handwriting, decided it was him, decided he was writing her, and created a week of delusion. (laughs) This is what happens, right? But we can wake up. That's the good news. A yogi came in today, another yogi came in, and she was talking about these trigger, she'd been triggered by some event, and then this whole long train of thoughts and emotions followed. Da-da-da, you know, papancha, on and on. And then at the end of it, she had this thought. You made that up. <laughs> <laughs> and then 
It's great, isn't it? And then there was room for like new information to come in. It's like then she started to see, oh, um, wow, maybe there's another way to look at this, right? And, and understanding entered. So, so the mindfulness of, of understanding the view, opinion, able to hold it lightly, made room for new information to come in. That's what we're doing. So I've talked a little bit about uh, getting caught in um, delusion or caught in uh, these circles of delusion of old conditioning. Um, The most tenacious conditioning we have as humans is the, the views and opinions that we have about the nature of life itself. Basically, we have um, in the Vipalasa Sutra, they talk about four hallucinations of perception. These are the, the, the biggies here. You're going to recognize some of them. Perceiving permanence in the impermanent, pleasure in the stressful, self in what's not self, attractiveness in the unattractive, beings destroyed by wrong view go mad out of their minds, bound to Mara's yoke from the yoke they find no rest, beings go on to the wandering on leading to birth and death, but when awakened ones arise in the world, bring light to the world, They proclaim the Dhamma leading to the stillness of Dukkha. When those with discernment listen, they regain their senses, seeing the impermanent as impermanent, the stressful as stressful, what's not self as not self, the unattractive as unattractive. Undertaking right view, they transcend all stress and suffering. So basically, the four hallucinations of perception or the four um, places where we misperceive reality is that we see permanency when there's really impermanence. And we see pleasure where there's really suffering. And we see self where there's really not self. And we see beauty in what is not so lovely. So the first three, you'll recognize, we've talked about them a lot. Anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, dukkha, and uh, not-self. Not seeing these three characteristics deeply is delusion. Seeing them clearly is wisdom. And a lot of our practice is to facilitate the seeing of them clearly. It's said that these three characteristics are doorways to the truth and doorways to freedom, to nibbana, to the unconditioned. It's, it's often said that at the moment of enlightenment, we'll take one of those three and pierce it deeply. We'll pierce the veil of delusion through one of these doorways, through one of these truths. The fourth one's 
not talked about quite as much. The um, seeing beauty in what's not so lovely. It's not very popular in this country to talk about it because people can kind of get a little freaked out or uh, or do some um, tangles in the mind around it. But one example is we might look at a plate of food and think it's beautiful and lovely, but then when you chew it, you know, maybe it's not so lovely. Our moms told us not to chew with our mouths open for some reason, right? Or there may be times when there's a way that we can say the human body is quite beautiful, but there's also times on retreat where we'll really tune into the kind of the drudgery of taking care of a human body. It's so much work. You have to wash it and feed it and rest it and exercise it and take care of it when it's sick. And, and then you have to get up every day and do it over again. You have to floss your teeth. <coughs> you have to drink water when you get a dry throat. You have to drink more water when you get a There's another thing that's important to realize when we talk about um, these deep truths of uh, impermanence and dukkha and not-self and unloveliness. There's a couple, we often talk about two levels of reality, um, the conventional and the absolute, right? So with these teachings, we're really pointing towards this absolute level of reality, the, you could say the fabric of existence and the nature of the fabric of existence. But that doesn't mean that we have to obliterate the conventional level. Sometimes people are afraid that we have to do that and then they, um, they uh, get a little scared. We can count on some level of permanence in relative reality. In absolute reality, everything is changing all the time so fast, but in absolute reality, there is some permanence. And sometimes this can be helpful on retreat at certain times. I remember a time a number of years ago when I was sitting in the dining room and I was eating, and uh, suddenly the people walking by, it's like they didn't exist. I mean, like, I could see people, I could see these forms moving, but it was like everything was. Um, insubstantial. And I was not in a space to assimilate that information at that moment. I was, let's just say I wasn't in a good place to do that. And uh, so my mind was just like, whoa. You know? And so I, re- I, I actually backed up to the level of, real- of relative reality. I was like, okay, I have my bowl of uh, oatmeal here. And um, I'm, e- I'm eating oatmeal. And I was like, it really, it was like, it was like, you know, there's, we can still count on this bowl of oatmeal to be here, right, in a few minutes, and that when we lift it up to our mouth and, and take a bite, there'll be something to chew, and sometimes it's actually helpful if we get too, we get too into the absolute, and it's like, we're not ready to deal with it, like, come back to the relative, it's all right, it's still here. The highest realization is when we can hold both of these truths 
and you could say use them when appropriate or have access to both of them. And since we perceive the conventional reality most of the time, on retreat we really emphasize this absolute level of reality of really being able to touch deeply impermanence, not self, dukkha. And touching these truths about life, this is the movement from delusion to wisdom. It's the movement from living in imaginary um, stories in the mind or assumptions about life to the truth of the way life really is. The meaning of Vipassana is to see clearly. That's what we're doing. We're developing the ability to to see clearly and to purify our perceptions. To clarify and purify perceptions so that we can see what's true. And it's mindfulness that that makes this possible for us. Kind of uh, open-minded mindfulness, uh, mindfulness um, based in interest curiosity with a don't know attitude. So we often talk about beginner's mind. That's that don't know attitude. Um, And that's why beginner's mind is so important. In beginner's mind, there's not assumptions. There's not the the attachment to assumptions and perceptions. There's um, space to actually see things as they are. I read a great book recently called Eyes Wide Open, Cultivating Discernment on the Spiritual Path by Mariana Kaplan. Here's something she says about this. Rather than placing all of our attention on trying to know everything, which is often a defense against the frightening vulnerability of our human condition, let us strive to not know and let the barriers erected by our spiritual arrogance and superiority be worn down until we become permeable to the wisdom of life itself. So mindfulness directs us towards seeing things as they are. And um, it's important to know that, that uh, we can't think our way out of delusion that we actually have to see our way out of delusion to um, touch the present moment, moment after moment. That's how we come out of delusion. So we often would like to think our way out of it, but that just leads to more conceptualization, right? And so the insight comes out of this seeing moment by moment by moment by moment, and it's much more intuitive rather than thought out. Basically what happens is mindfulness learns or awareness teaches or life teaches and awareness learns or however you want to phrase it. Um, And then we'll we'll have a deep understanding and at first it's wordless. Then we'll have a thought about it and then we'll ruminate. Just so you know, the rumination, that's extra. You don't need to do that part. It's like actually before the rumination, you've gotten information. You've seen. 
And so if you find yourself kind of ruminating about Dharma thoughts, um, rein it in. Like, take that energy and reinvest it in the present moment. Reinvest it in your practice. You don't need to do that. You got it. You already have it. So we let those go and come back to the present moment. And we talk a lot about um, getting close to our experience. This is another way that we uh, develop wisdom. So not in the conceptual mind, but in the, the direct experience. So for example, we have a pain in the knee. And on the surface, it seems like it's solid. It seems like it's real. It seems like if we got rid of it, we'd be happy. It seems like it's mine. And then when we pay close attention to what the actual experience is, what do we notice? We notice impermanence. It changes. We notice that struggling against it leads to stress and dukkha. And we notice that, oh, it arises because conditions came together. It's the elements, uh, certain elements arising together. It's not so personal. So we, wisdom develops by that getting close to our experience. There's not room for delusion in that, that, that moment-to-moment seeing what's happening. Meditation creates cognitive dissonance. What I mean by that is meditation challenges our views and opinions and beliefs about life. So often we come to meditation and we think that uh, we've come here, we're going to learn to relax a little bit, maybe de-stress a little bit, right? Reggie Ray, a Tibetan teacher, it was suggested to him that most of the world would think that meditation means cultivating a peaceful state of mind. And he responded, well, those are people who haven't meditated, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So we come here, and and sometimes we feel like we get a little bit more than we signed up for. We thought we were coming to chill a little bit. and, And then we find that, like, some of our deepest assumptions about ourselves, about life, they're challenged. And it doesn't always seem like good news at first. So this movement from delusion to truth isn't always an easy one. Pema Chodron said the truth is inconvenient. And Mariana Copeland said before the truth sets you free, it tends to make you miserable. And Trungpa Rinpoche said, if you want your money back, it's all right. Just go to the door and ask for it back. In fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, best not to begin. (laughs) It's difficult. It's terrible. And you have to face all kinds of things you won't like. As far as your ego is concerned, it's just one insult after another. (laughs) And yet, and yet... Even for all of that, we find that connecting with the truth 
frees the mind, it frees the heart. We find that it's worth all of that, it's worth all of those insights. It's worth all of the, um, the um, cognitive dissonance and the, and the challenges that come in facing the truth. We find that the more that we can connect with the truth, the more we can connect with life. And you could say that all of our meditation strengthens our capacity to connect with truth and to connect with life. And we need the metta, we need the kind-heartedness. We really need that, or otherwise it's really hard to connect with the truth. Our old conditioning, some of our old conditioning will get in sometimes and really make it uh, distort the truth. Metta helps um, keep that from happening. And what we find is that our capacity uh, to actually connect with life and be present for life gets stretched and grows and grows and grows. So this great process of purification is one where we see the layers of misperception and the layers of misinterpretation and layers of delusion that we put on reality And in this way, we purify our vision and discover what's really true. And every moment of mindfulness is like a little pinhole in the veil of delusion. Every moment, they all count. And this, um, this relaxing into the truth of things is a real huge relief. And you can taste a little bit of it in your own practice. You know you have those moments you're sitting... You're trying to relax, right? You're trying to be with the breath. You're trying to chill. You're trying to relax. And then all of a sudden you have this realization, oh, this isn't, relaxation isn't what's happening right here. It's restlessness is happening. And that moment that you go, oh, this is what's happening, you know that sense of relief you feel. There's like, oh, okay, this is the truth. And you feel like that energy that you've expended in, re- in um, resisting the way things are, you feel it let go and you feel this spaciousness. That's a, that's a taste of moving from delusion to truth and the freedom that, um, and the relief that happens when we do that. Mariana Kaplan again. What is brighter, more essential, and more true can shine forth when we break down the illusions we have overlaid onto reality. In seeing, there exists the possibility to take far greater responsibility for our lives, to open ourselves to more understanding, more heartbreak, more challenge, more expansion, and also to serve humanity in progressively deeper ways.
So we have these moments of connecting with the truth of things and these moments of opening to the expanse of our hearts. These moments of seeing the rising and passing away of phenomena. Moments of compassion. Moments of rest and the end of striving. Moments of open-hearted interest. And all of these move us towards freedom from delusion, freedom from ignorance, and towards wisdom, truth, and compassion. That's what you're doing here. I'll end with a quote by Nisargadatta, the uh, Hindu saint. Truth is not a reward for good behavior nor a prize for passing some tests. It cannot be brought about. It is the primary, the unborn, the ancient source of all that is. You are eligible because you are. You need not merit truth. It is your own. Just stop running away by running after. Stand still. Be quiet. When you demand nothing of the world, when you want nothing, seek nothing, expect nothing, then the truth will come to you uninvited and unexpected. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.